Hey, everybody. So many people enjoyed Kelsey's teaching last weekend during the bonus episode. We're going to go ahead and put out another bonus episode this weekend. This is my teaching from Sunday morning on our Zoom group as I talked about the common thread all through the Great Commission about the kingdom of God and what it means in our life. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, you might want to open it up and, and stick well, primarily in the Gospels this morning. We'll flip back and forth a little bit. Uh, while we get there, let me uh, tell you two real quick things. Well, three here. Um, if everyone go has, goes ahead and puts themselves on mute for a little while, that uh, kind of helps the experience for everybody else. We will do some, some discussion and Q&A or just observations at the end, so there'll be some time for everybody to, to speak up later if you'd like, but if you can go ahead and mute yourself now, that's helpful. Uh, also, our, our plan is we're hoping to meet together physically, all be in one spot if we can, on Pentecost Sunday, which is May 31st, um, down in uh, Peculiar, Missouri. Uh, at Kip and Chris Unruh's outdoor venue. They've got a, a great um, kind of an amphitheater out there that we believe we can meet very safely in. Uh, we're waiting on some things on the 15th that'll be uh, announced by the uh, state, but we think we'll be within the guidelines. Um, and if we are, we will. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna flirt with it. It's the kind of thing that you're out in the middle of nowhere. You can probably do what you wanted, but we wanna stay within the, uh, the spirit and the, the letter of the law. So we think uh, May 31st, that's going to happen. Very excited about that. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit. Oh, one other thing. One other thing. Some of you are contacting me late in the week saying, I didn't get an email. Where did my email go? Um, if you're on the list, uh, it may have gone to junk. Some of, some of the emails are, are going to your junk file. I don't take it personally. Uh, I don't think you're sending them to junk, but they're, that's where they're ending up. Mine ends up junk. I email myself and it ends up junk. So you may want to look in there if you're having a hard time finding it some weeks. Last week, we started talking about the Great Commission and are going to continue a little bit about it today. Uh, last week, we talked about John 4.23, where it says, uh, Do not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. And how the real weak link in people coming into the kingdom of God is laborers. Uh, the people are ready and the Lord is gracious to receive them. And he was so intent on his followers embracing his mission that in that gap between uh, the resurrection and the ascension, he talked about the, uh, uh, something we call the Great Commission or commissioning his followers to reach the world. Now, uh, many of you are probably familiar with the term. You've heard the term Great Commission. Have you ever heard of the Barna Research Group? Just give me a wave. Have you ever heard of Barna? Barna, uh, the Barna Group is a research group that researches uh, church trends, and they have been kind of like faithfully delivering bad news about the church for decades. It's like every time they come out with a study, you're like, oh, this is not good news. And uh, a recent one about two years ago, they did with the Seed Company, which is a company, uh, an organization that works on Bible translation. And they asked people in churches uh, how familiar they were with the term the Great Commission. 51% uh, of people attending church said they had not really weren't familiar with the idea of the Great Commission at all. And well, you think 51% don't know what the Great Commission is. Well, that means at least the other half probably do, but it's not that good. 17% 
said they were familiar with the passage that is described as the Great Commission. 25% said it rang a bell, but they can't remember what it is. And 6% of people in churches said they just had never even heard the term and they don't know what it means. Now, that pool probably includes a lot of people from uh, more liberal, liberal theological churches. And so maybe it's a little bit skewed, but I don't know that it would be a whole lot different in our own circles. I would think that even among us, there are those that would say they're familiar with the Great Commission, but they're familiar with a far simpler presentation of it than Jesus actually made in, in, the, in the Gospels. We've kind of boiled it down to go therefore into all the world. And that's what we think of as the Great Commission. But Jesus said a lot more about that, and he spoke a lot about his plan for the disciples. At least five times in the New Testament, he presents it in a little bit different way. And I listed these last week, but I'll, I'll give them to you again if you missed them. Matthew 28, 16 to 20, he gives them the Great Commission on a mountain in Galilee. Mm -hmm. In Mark 16, 14 to 18, he commissions them in a private setting. So it's a completely different meeting. In Luke 24, 44 to 49, it seems to be a summary of a couple of different times because it's a, a, a large period of time condensed together into one story. In Luke 20, 19 to 23, it's recorded on the day of the resurrection, so you know it's different than the other times that he did it. And then in Acts 1, he commissions them again right before he ascends to the Father. And uh, you say, why does that all matter that he did it that many times? It's because we have a tendency to think of the Great Commission a little bit like um, uh, Lincoln's inaugural address, like the text is already landed, like we all know what the text is and it's the same every time. If you go to the Lincoln Memorial, on the side of the Lincoln Memorial, they have his inaugural addresses etched into the wall. The Great Commission is not like that. He talked about it multiple times from multiple different angles. It's more powerful because he touches about it a number of different times. It includes a broad message, uh, some specific promises, and even a strong rebuke at one point as he's commissioning them into what they are supposed to do when he goes to be with the Father. Now, I had uh, great designs on kind of doing a walkthrough of all five passages this morning. And as I sat down and I started to make notes uh, in the middle of the week, I realized there's just way too much there to try and put together. So I'm going to kind of try and synthesize them a little bit, starting from the broadest portion of what he talks about and then narrowing it down a little bit. Because Jesus said some bold things, some hopeful things, and some really strong things uh, as he speaks to them. Remember, this is not a half-interested crowd. They have followed him around the countryside. They have seen miracles. They have wept when he was crucified. They wept again, probably, when they realized he was resurrected. So they're very tuned in to what he is saying. And he starts out with a very specific message. What do you talk about with someone in light of a very traumatic event? Like when they've gone through a lot of trauma or something very difficult has happened, you talk about what matters. When someone's gone through a difficult time, you don't necessarily revisit everything that causes them pain, but you have the conversations that you know they're going to need you to have. The needs of the situation force the agenda of the meeting. And in that light, this is what Jesus talked about. Acts 1 and 3, 1, 3 says, He presented themselves to, alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Meaning in that period of time when he laid out the Great Commission multiple times in those 40 days, over and over and over again, he talked about the kingdom of God. 
I would bet that in that season, question and answer time with Jesus would have been really interesting. Because you're wondering, all right, tell me about, you know, what was death like? Where were you? How did that feel? What does resurrection feel like? All of these questions, he could have talked about the miracles he'd seen and done. He could have talked about a lot of different things. Instead, it says he significantly spoke about the kingdom of God. And that's a little mysterious to us because, particularly as Americans, we don't have a real grid for how kingdoms work. We don't think much about kingdoms. And some of that is political. If you ask any American how the country of England relates to the kingdom of Great Britain, and why are they not the same thing? We, we don't understand that. We just, that's, that's not a part of our experience. Why are Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland part of it? But Ireland isn't, and the Isle of Ireland is part of the English islands, but it's not part of the country. It's like, we don't get that at all. Another reason we don't understand kingdoms is of our confusion of democracy with spirituality. Because of how our country is set up, we think that that's God's favorite form of government. In America, Everyone has a voice, and it's a beautiful political system for broken human beings, but it's not the overarching metaphor of the kingdom of God. His kingdom is wired differently than that, and it doesn't set well with us asserting our rights all the time. In fact, it's often demonstrated when we deny ourselves our rights. So when he's talking about the kingdom of God, what, what does he keep going back to there? The word kingdom has two different connotations. It can mean the land and the people and the riches of a kingdom. When we think of the kingdom of England, we think of uh, vast swaths of land and people. That is a kingdom. But there's another use of the word kingdom that refers to the inherent power that the king has. The kingdom is his full strength and his full authority. And when he speaks about the kingdom, more often that's what he's talking about. In Psalm 103, 19, it says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That means his authority rules over everything. Psalm 145, 10 and 11 says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and of your power. Jesus' most consistent message to his followers during that gap of time between the resurrection and the ascension was about how his power and his authority would one day cover the earth. His kingdom was coming. I would recommend highly a book by George Ladd called The Gospel of the Kingdom. It's a little blue book. It's, it's very unassuming. Uh, it's highly recommended and regarded by scholars, but it's fairly easy to read. And he talks about the kingdom of God in a way that just kind of brings it to life. And he describes it this way. He says, God's kingdom is the rule of God. You either submit to King Jesus and participate in a kingdom, or you are at odds with that kingdom. Some of you in your past have had seasons of great sin, and you felt very much ill at ease through that time. The discomfort that we feel when we're at odds with God is because we are at odds with the rule that God rightly deserves in our life, the authority that he deserves. Now, historically among the Jews, there's always been an expectation of a coming theocracy or a kingdom led by God. That is a part of their belief system. They think that is coming. And in some ways, the Jewish people felt they had arrived at the promised land, but the promise himself wasn't fully there yet because the king had not yet come. The Messiah was coming, but they hadn't seen him. How amazing it would be when they would be in the land and the king would be on his throne. 
And they held tight under promises like Isaiah 11:6 that says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. <clears throat> held on to that and believed that one day in the kingdom of God, that's how it would all work. That was the kingdom they expected to see in the flesh in their lifetime. Now we have the entirety of the New Testament, and we understand that's a passage that is geared towards the millennium when Jesus returns. But why, if that is then, why has Jesus spent so much time in between the resurrection and the ascension talking about the kingdom of God, if that's all it is, is when he returns? It's because Jesus knew that the fullness of the kingdom was coming, but in a sense, his kingdom was already on earth in the hearts of men and women. John Wimber is the founder of the vineyard, and he often described this tension as the now and the not yet. The kingdom is here, but yet it's coming. He was not the originator of that phrase, but he probably made it more, more popular than anyone. And while Jesus looked forward to the full expression of his kingdom, when everything would be made right, he also delighted in the now of his kingdom as it was expressed in the hearts of people who would surrender to him. Jesus is as excited about your obedience to him today as he is about the time when he will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. That is the kingdom come on this earth when you're obedient to him and you let him rule your life. We may not recognize the structure of the kingdom of God in our own governmental structures right now or our media, although there may be pockets of it, where we see the rule of God primarily in this age is within the hearts of men and women. To the religious, the kingdom was unobtainable. It just wasn't happening. You, they couldn't see it. But to those that embraced Jesus, they realized that the kingdom was within. This is how immediate it was to Jesus. In Matthew 4, Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been arrested. And he goes to the courthouse to protest. No, he doesn't go to the courthouse to protest. He doesn't protest at all. It says he withdrew, went to Capernaum by the sea. And he does that in Matthew 4.14 to fulfill a prophecy that is referenced in the book of Isaiah. So to those who followed the expectation of a Messiah, this would be a good sign that he was beginning to take over his kingdom because Isaiah said he would do this. But he didn't immediately act in the way he thought. And even his cousin John from prison would send messengers saying, are you the one? You know, where you're not expect, you're not acting like we thought a king would act. Where is this kingdom you have talked about and that we have read about in the scripture. And in that tentative in-between place in history, the next verse says, Matthew 4, 17, from that time, the kingdom, or Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can almost hear a collective, what? Like, what, collective, what are you talking about that the kingdom is at hand? How can the kingdom be, this is not the kingdom. We were laughing last night as a family. We were talking about a trip we took uh, when Zion, who's now 18, was, was about three, maybe four. We went to California. So friends were going to take us to Disneyland. So we talked about this trip over and over again. You know, we're going to Disneyland. It's going to be great. We're going to California. Well, when we walked off of um, the airplane at LAX, if you've ever been to LAX, it is not Disneyland. Uh, it's awful. And we walked off, and Zion, I'm not sure what he thought we were going to walk into, but that was not it. And he literally collapsed on the floor yelling, this is not California. This is not Disneyland. 
And you can almost hear the disciples when he says the kingdom is at hand, look around and go, this is not Disneyland. This is not what we expected. We were thinking one thing and we've got something completely different. How is this the kingdom? The idea of the immediacy of the kingdom, the right now of God's rule, would give people fits all through Jesus' ministry. Luke 17, 20 to 21 says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some versions say the kingdom of heaven is within you. A better translation might be, it is within your grasp. Friends, I'm telling you right now, in your own homes, the kingdom of heaven is within your grasp. All it takes is for you to submit to the rule of God in your life. You allow God to rule over you, to help you make decisions, to guide you, his Holy Spirit to minister to you. And you know what? The kingdom is right there. Now, a lot of people who preach about the coming kingdom are thinking about his rule on earth. And uh, they think that they are eager for that to be expressed through them. They talk about the kingdom. They're talking about authority on earth. And there is some element over that. But they kind of lean into what I call the dominion passages. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Take over the world. And there are Christians that have this idea that as people of faith, we're going to take over every facet of the world. And I believe we're going to be people of influence. But if you'll remember that first passage, that first dominion passage did not go well. Man couldn't rule the earth because man couldn't rule his desires. When you extend the kingdom of God in your realm of influence, it's only to the measure that you embrace the rule of God in your own life you begin to see the rule of God manifest around you when you begin to manifest the rule of God within you. So long as you're ruling your inner life by yourself, you are fully responsible for your outer life as well. Jesus said, look within you. Does the kingdom rule and reign in there? Because that's the kingdom that I'm coming to reign over. Do you want a theocracy? then let him operate one in your life. You want culture around you to change? Let him change you within. You lay down your rights and you let God rule you. Congratulations, you are fully in the kingdom. You are now a walking embassy, but you are his kingdom. The payoff of acknowledging God's kingdom within us and ruling us in righteousness is way bigger than salvation or relief from sin. It is immediate in that you become to know him right away, and it is developing as it strengthens within you. It is here, and it is not yet. We see glimpses of that. In the idea of healing. We see some hurts being healed. One day, everyone's inner man will completely be healed. And we live in that tension of why some and why not others. But the one thing where the kingdom can fully manifest itself is within your life as you surrender to him. The more we grow and the more we are mature and the more authority he has in our life and the more we surrender to him, the more benefits we see of that kingdom in our life. We used to, I can't remember the tune of it now. It's probably good because I might sing it. But we used to sing a song as a kid called, You Are Sweeter As The Days Go By. You'll recognize that as a believer, as his kingdom has more reign in your life, he grows more and more dear to you. A new believer has some idea of what the Lord has done, 
but it takes them years to unpack that. A saint that has allowed the kingdom to flourish in their life understands to a greater and greater measure what it's all about. Just as the religion and expectation continually tried to make it more about laws and rules, the kingdom of God in our inner man pays dividends at a totally unexpected level. Romans 4.17 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. It's not about rules. It is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Your access to righteousness and peace and joy, even in this incredibly stressful time, when we don't know what is next, when we have to go stand in line and wear a mask to buy toilet paper, our source, our source of peace and joy and righteousness comes from allowing his kingdom to manifest fully in us. Now, I believe we're entering into something that's going to be a very new season, and it frightens some of you, just because new, newness is, is not your preferred mode of acting. It's thrilling, and it's frightening all at once, because even if life as we knew it was boring, it was our boring. And now, if it's going to be boring, it's going to be a completely different boring that we're not used to. But when we start to think about the Great Commission as a command to declare the availability of the rule of God in people's lives— to their hearts, it changes how you think about walking into new situations. When you gather back with those that you work with, you walk into that under the rule of God. You walk into a room and it's like you're an embassy of that kingdom. We're about to enter into a new situation as the nation starts to reopen. And it is so new that even the futurists that they interview can't tell you what it's going to be like. They'll interview five people on the news, and all five of them have a completely different take on what it's going to be like. Let me explain. They don't know. They're just guessing like the rest of us. They just happen to be guessing on TV. We're guessing in our living rooms. But know this. The one who rules within you and the one who has a kingdom within you will give you purpose on your journey, however it all unfolds and how it all opens up. We're not just out wandering around. We're on an apostolic journey, and everywhere we go, we declare the goodness of the rule of God in our lives. Leading a neighbor to the Lord isn't about convincing them with scriptures, although the scripture will play a part of that. It's about displaying how the rule of God in your life and your submission to Jesus has changed things internally and even externally. A peaceful spirit in the coming day will be the greatest evangelistic tool that you can imagine because peace is going to be in short supply. And if you can find it, you can give it away. When Jesus used the word apostle, he borrowed it, actually. We think of it as a, as a church word. It wasn't a church word. It was a military term. And it was used to describe a ship. And the ship was sent to foreign lands where there would be, uh, the king had taken over these foreign lands and the ship was sent to prepare those lands for the king to come and visit. As people with an apostolic calling, we are sent into this foreign land so that the foreign land can be prepared for the return of the king. His message is the kingdom is here and it will be more here when he returns. We're here to prepare people's hearts for his return. So he gives us this message that it's about a kingdom, and it's about a kingdom that starts internally. And he also gives them a couple of promises, and I want to unpack these promises really quick. Three promises. First of all, he promises them the idea of peace. Now, I had the joy a couple of weeks ago of teaching uh, 
my eight-year-old Creed to ride a bike. He's never had any interest in riding a bike. And so the other day he's like, I want to ride a bike. Okay. I don't know who is more excited, him or me, but we go out and, uh, he absolutely killed it. He literally never wiped out. I, I ran with him a little bit and I've got this trick I do where you kind of support him with a belt so they can feel the bike move. And he just got it. And again, I don't know who's more excited. I was just completely thrilled. I was super excited that he didn't wipe out. That was great. I knew far better than he did what he was about to experience. He didn't understand physics. He couldn't have explained balance to you. He didn't know what it meant to crash. I didn't have the heart to explain it to him. All I could do really is give him some confidence. I was aware of what I was releasing Creed to do. Jesus is aware of what he is commissioning us to do. He's aware that, okay, he's got his apostles and he's getting ready to let go of the bike. And he's got an understanding that they do not have about what's going to happen. He'd been thinking about this moment for a long time. Three chapters earlier, he was praying for them and he was talking to his father about his disciples. And he says this in John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. He's like, he's talking to his father. He's like, I'm getting ready to let go of the bike. And I know what it means. I've done this before. You sent me, but you sent me with the benefit of being God on earth. And I'm sending them. Oh my goodness. Have you met Peter? Do you know John? I'm getting ready to let go of the bike. I, where are the bandages? So with that prayer ringing in his ears, three chapters later, Jesus gets ready to let go of the bike. And it is crash or cruise for the disciples. How does Jesus introduce this idea of I'm getting ready to let go of the bike? John 20, 21, part of the, one of those passages where he talks about the Great Commission, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent you, sent me, even I am sending you. So he echoes his, his prayer to the Father, and he gives them this blessing of peace. He's like, you have no idea what this is going to be like. Peace. Put your helmet on. Have a whole firm grasp, but I want you to have peace into what you're walking into. G. Campbell Morgan, I've been reading about. He was a 10-year-old British boy whose parents took him to hear D.L. Moody preach in London. And he was so moved by the message of the gospel and the power of the presentation that he immediately said to his parents, I want to preach. And at 13 years Wait, old, he started to preach his first sermon. Uh, he went on to pastor Westminster Chapel. If you've ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, G. Campbell Morgan was the pastor of Westminster Chapel before Martin Lloyd-Jones was. And in regard to this passage, this peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, Morgan said this, Jesus had faced and defeated all of the forces which destroy the peace of man. As he said, peace be with you, he was doing infinitely more than expressing a wish. He was making a declaration. He was bestowing a benediction. He was imparting a blessing. You think about that. Jesus never wished anything in his life. He spoke it, and it was real. He said, peace be with you. It wasn't it, it wasn't the character from Princess Bride saying, have fun storming the castle. You know, I hope that works out for you. I hope you don't crash your bike. No, he was saying, I am, I am planting peace on you. I, he had the authority to command peace to go with you. We are living in unsettled times. It is, uh, it is terra not firma. And the ground that we stand on seems to tilt on multiple axes. Some of you, you know, it was like, 
okay, we're locked in our house. That was one axis. Okay, now I'm seeing all the cracks in the foundation of the house that I'm locked in. And it's another axis. Now my kids are going crazy. And the whole world is tilted on multiple access, access for many of us. And the Lord looks at that and he makes a command. He says, peace, peace be with you. The people that you are responsible for are universally ill at ease. Peace be with you. I'm calling you to carry a load you didn't even know existed. Peace be with you. You're about to be asked to do what you don't think you can do. Peace be with you. You're about to declare the rule of God in your life and then display it to the world so that the rule of God can be declared in their lives. There is a peace that goes with embracing that calling. He is not afraid to call us higher into mission because he has changed the rules about what you can navigate when you answer his call. Because when you respond to that call, he says, I, I actually linked peace to the response of that call. If you embrace the mission, you need to lean into the peace. Because the mission, apart from the peace, will eat your lunch. Some of you are, are uh, very apprehensive about things that you feel the Lord is calling you to do. I would advise you, to, you don't do it without embracing the peace that he commands to go with you. More than one person, people smarter and more genuine than you or I, have embraced the call of God without relying on the peace of God, and history is littered with their bodies. He is saying, no, 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 the kingdom is within you. I want you to know me. I want you to answer this call, but I want you to trust me. I've got peace that you don't even know about, and it will develop like joy in your life as you allow the rule of God in your own life, and you respond with a yes over and over and over and over. You know, some would say that from a life station, I'm in the most precarious position that we've ever been. You know, a lot is unsettled, but in saying yes to what he is calling us to do, I, I feel a peace and I feel an encouragement from him. There, I, there is more peace in obeying the call and the commission than there is in resisting the call and ruling your life on your own. So he offers them peace, or he commands peace to those that respond to the call. He also offers them protection. In Mark 16, in that record of the Great Commission, remember there's at least five different records of this, Jesus describes the days to come, and he describes some pretty weird things. Uh, if you've not been involved in ministry, weirdest things in the world happen in ministry. Like the things that you go, I could not believe that happened, those things happen. And in Mark 16, started in 17, he, it's funny because he, he describes some of those things and he intersperses them with miracles. It says, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they'll lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now in old school Pentecostal circles, this is where it gets weird because they take this passage and they twist it around a little bit to interpret it to be a mandate to handle snakes in worship. How many of you have ever heard of this? You actually, some of you are like, you have big eyes. No, there are people that actually believe this, particularly in Appalachia. When we lived in East Tennessee, just about every year, somebody in a hundred mile radius would die in a snake handling service. It actually happened, which you think would make it uh, really hard to be a recruiter for these church services, but they, they managed to, to continue. He is not encouraging us to handle snakes. He's saying things are going to happen during the course of ministry, okay? And you will be protected. Later on in the book of Acts, this exact same thing happens in the book of Acts. 
Paul is lighting a fire on a beach and a snake comes out and the dog latches onto him or the dog. You can see the dog is like trying to latch onto me. How many of you noticed this dog? She's going up. Paisley, do you need anything? Time out. Could one of my kids take the dog out? None of these people on the Zoom call are going to do it. Okay. okay, somebody's taking the dog out. That's great. Zoom church. That's how it works. <laughs> but this is not a command to go out and handle snakes, okay? What he's saying is, if you follow me in ministry, you will see miracles happen. You'll see me provide. You'll see me be protective. You'll see me take care of you. And the miraculous will be not only... Uh, creative and in healing people, it will be in protecting you. The safest thing you can do for your family and for yourself is to allow the kingdom to be manifest and the rule of God to be manifest in your life. If he rules over you, you're under that umbrella. He, pro he offers him peace, but he also offers him protection. This speaks to the leadership of God. What is worse than, than not being protected? It's scary, isn't it? But he doesn't just give them peace and give them protection. He also promises them power. We'll talk about this, and then we'll uh, discuss just a little bit. This power that he gives them to do what he has called them to do. Is there anything worse than being asked to do something you can't do, and everybody expects you to do the thing, and you don't either you don't know how to, or you just don't have the power to do it? Um, you know, growing up on a farm, we had a, a variety of uh, livestock. We always had... Um, always had cattle we always had a couple of horses and we always had more pigs than you should um, in my mind one is more than you should uh, but we always had like 50 or 60 or 70 and when we would move them from one place to another uh, they always had to go through this little chute that we had in the barn to get from kind of one end to the other and I remember my dad telling me once they go through that chute jump in there and don't let them come back at any cost, like no matter what you do, don't let them go under no circumstances should a pig go back through that chute. So I take my place, but this I knew that if a 400 pound pig decided to occupy the space that my 90 pound 12 year old frame occupied, the pig is going to win. And I would stand there, and sure enough, one would turn around and come for me, and, you know, I was out of there. My dad would get so frustrated, but I was, I didn't have the power to do what he asked me to do. I, I failed miserably, catastrophically, repeatedly. I just, over and over, my dad never seemed to learn. He was a great dad, but he never understood that he was asking me to do something that I didn't have within me. Jesus foresaw the struggle of what he was calling us to do. To the extent that the knowledge of God around the world was going to take more than these fishermen and tax collectors had, Jesus promised them more if they would ask and wait for it. Acts 1, 4, and 5 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He said, I am too good of a father to ask you to stand in the chute and do something that you can't possibly do. So you stay here and you wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you because I want to give you power. Acts 2, 8 through 9 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and then you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, they were looking on, and suddenly he was lifted up in a cloud, and he took them out of their sight. 
The task he laid out before them was more than they could strategize to achieve. There's no amount of whiteboard sessions, no amount of brainstorming that could get this uneducated group of men to spread a counterculture message of repentance and a Messiah that had been killed and then disappeared up into the sky to the point that just a few chapters later, 17 chapters later, a thousand miles away, the crowds of Thessalonica would say, these are men who have turned the world upside down. How do those guys get that result? Are these the same guys that ran in the garden when Jesus was praying? Yes and no. These are guys that are under the rule of God with the peace and the protection and the power that comes with allowing him to have authority in your life. I want the city of Kansas City, as it opens up, to speak of the church as a whole as having the ability to turn this city upside down. Because the church has taken this time to realign itself with the kingdom and saying, Lord, before I try and extend your rule, I embrace your rule for myself. Jesus' message was the kingdom or the rule of God in our hearts and then beyond. And his promise with that is peace and protection and power. And nestled in those five passages, it, where there's even a rebuke. We'll talk about that a little bit next week where he's like, okay, as you go out, remember this one thing. But there is so much in these passages. I would just encourage you to go back and read through them over and over again in, in the coming weeks as we go towards uh, Pentecost Sunday, that he would stir us with what he has called us to do. Mm -hmm.